So we have been in a uh, series of conversations um, that I've called ichthus. It's a Greek word that means fish, and um, it's actually a memory aid from from the early days of the church. We know it goes back um, at least to the early 200s because we found it on funeral um, funeral markers, and it is uh, this this five letter memory aid in the Greek alphabet. It's seven in English, ichthus, and the memory aid is fish. Um, but what it is is it's a it's a reminder to the people of that time. What were the things that they were most concerned that people uh, know that they believed about Jesus? What, what, were, what were kind of the core essentials of their faith? And um, so uh, they had this, um, they had this uh, mnemonic, this memory aid, ichthus. And what we saw last week is that ichthus stands for Jesus uh, Christos Theu Quias Soter, which is Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, and um, yes, there it is. So, um, so that's that's what uh, the the mnemonic stands for. And uh, what we saw last week is that the first word, uh, the one that begins with an I, is Jesus. And that's because in most countries, uh, most languages around the world, even today, uh, Jesus's name is really Jesus or Yesu or something like that. Um, but by kind of an accident, a linguistic accident of history. It's it's pronounced with a J sound in English, so we call him Jesus. And I checked with him, uh, uh, and he's okay with that. If we can call him Jesus, um, just so long as we call him. Um, so, uh, so uh, uh, Jesus is what we saw last week is a very powerful name. That it is it is um, powerful, uh, not as kind of a hocus pocus or abracadabra, but because it it is it is the the name that gets us through the clutter, it, it enables us who have no other standing before God to, to be ushered right into the throne room where our requests are heard. So Jesus is this powerful name. And today we're going to look at the second word, which is Christos or Christ. And um, it, is, it is not a last name, although you may hear people, they you know stub their toe or hit their thumb and they say, Jesus Christ, you may think that Christ is a last name. Um, it's actually a title. And um, as I'll explain in a minute, uh, the title means means king, and uh, really that is that is the point. If you have to leave early, that's the point of today's message. Um, is Jesus your king? Is Jesus the king of your life? Because that is the foundation from which every other relationship that Jesus offers us is built. That if Jesus is the king of your life, then He can build all kinds of other relationships on that. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Christ means king. And so what I wanted to do is very quickly kind of just walk you through uh, uh, some words you'll hear if you go to church very often. They are Christ, Messiah, and anointed, and they all mean the same thing. Christ is the Greek word, um, and it was it's actually pronounced Christus in, in Greek, or at least it was at the time. Christus, it's, um, it's the same word, or it's the word that the Greeks chose to translate a Hebrew word, which is masach, and it's kind of a sound at the end. Um, so masach or uh, meshiach, uh, and meshiach, they, that became Messiah. So it also entered English kind of around the, around the, the uh, kind of a roundabout way. So we have Christ and we have Messiah. And then from French, we also have the word anointed, and it's where we get words like anointed. Uh, uh, anointed is where we get words like um, ointment. And the reason is because all of these words have to do with with oil, smearing oil or or fat on something. Um, the word cream is actually related to the word Christ. Um, so 
you know, if you put something creamy on something, that's that's uh, related to the same word as Christ. So what they all have to do with is um, fat or oil, and the reason is because uh, uh, there were two different there were two different reasons people did this. It doesn't sound all that pleasant to us, but if you stop and think for a minute of, of the the culture and the the climate and the area that these words come out of the the eastern end of the Mediterranean, um, it's it's hot, it's uh, windy. Um, it's dry and, um, for much of, much, of the, uh, much of those places. And so uh, they didn't have running water. They didn't have a lot of the things we take for granted, air conditioning and so forth. So they, their skin would get really beat up. And so one of the things they would do is they would apply what we would call a lotion. They would, they would put a lotion on. And so, for example, in um, uh, Psalm 23, uh, God, God is described as having anointed uh, the psalmist's head with oil and prepared a table. That was common courtesy. That was hospitality. Somebody comes to your house, you put some oil out for them, they can anoint themselves with the oil, just basically rub some lotion on, kind of freshen up a little bit, and that's what they did. That's one kind of, of, uh, of anointing that people would do in that, in that culture. But there was another very technical use of anointing, and that was to mark something as, as, as serving God. So if somebody had a role in serving God, then God would have them marked or anointed. And that's what we saw in the story of David um, David and Samuel, is that God said, I want you to go anoint this replacement who's going to be the new king instead of Saul. So he had him anointed. He had David anointed. And uh, that was not just unique to um, to that culture. We see it in Egyptian culture as well. You would pour oil on somebody to say that they were being set apart. So in this case, one of the pharaohs, is being anointed by these two pagan gods. But the concept was basically the same in Israel, where there was uh, just the one God. Uh, we, uh, we come from a culture that, is, that has only the one God, but we have the same idea that the king is set apart uh, for service um, by God, or in the case of Egypt, the, the two pagan gods there. So, so that's what the word means. Um, as a technical word, it means to be anointed uh, as a prophet or a priest, but especially as a king. And that's the example we saw in our reading from from um, uh, the Old Testament. And the question really for us is, is that true of us? Is Jesus our king? Um, because that is the foundation for all the other relationships that we can have with Jesus. Jesus is, is our friend, right? What a friend we have in Jesus. Uh, that relationship of friend... Uh, comes out of our relationship as a subject to our king. Um, uh, Jesus is closer than a brother. Uh, that relationship comes out of our relationship to Jesus as subjects uh, with him as our king. All the relationships we can have with Jesus are derived from this core fundamental relationship of Jesus as king. And I know that that's not a popular message. We're Americans. Uh, it's in our cultural DNA we, you know, our, our, our story as a nation is we rejected kings. We wrote, you know, just a month ago, we celebrated the 4th of July. We got rid of our king. We don't want to have a king. So we don't want to have a, a, a king. And, and yet the message of the scripture is we should have Jesus as our king. And so maybe a better way to understand this in America is to say, who's the authority in your life? Because we all have authorities in our life. Um, even even a, a survivalist living in a compound in, in the woods of Idaho have authorities in their life. So the question is, who are the authorities in your life? And the following question, or the, really the, the question that brings that home is, how are they doing? 
You know, who's the authority in charge of your work or your school? Who's, who's in charge of your, your career? And how are they doing? Who's, who's the authority who's in charge of your relationships? And how are they doing? Who, who is the authority who's in charge of your sexuality and your marriage? And how good of a job are they doing? Who's in charge of your finances? Who's in charge of your health? Because that is the question. Who is the authority and how good of a job are they doing? Because if they're not Jesus, they're probably not doing as good a job as you need them to do, or at least not all the time. So what I want to do is I want to look at this lesson and see what it tells us about Jesus. Because that's what Jesus offers to do. Jesus came pronouncing the nearness of God's kingdom. And so let's see what that looks like from our reading. Our reading begins um, by telling us that uh, they approached, uh, they came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now to us, Caesarea Philippi is just a place. It's just somewhere probably in Israel, right? But who knows where it is? Uh, there, It's in the northeast corner if you're curious. But the important thing, the reason that Matthew tells us that is because it's a city named for two kings. Um, uh, uh, Herod Philip, one of the, he was the local puppet king uh, for the Roman Empire. He said, I'm going to build this city and I'm going to name it, you know, kind of I'm going to kiss up to my boss. I'm going to name it after Tiberius Caesar. So uh, Caesarea got built and he named it Caesarea. Um, and then because there was already another Caesarea, he got to tack his own name on. So Caesarea Philippi. It's a city named after two kings. So Matthew's kind of, Putting the, putting the concept of kingship into kind of the background as we very begin this story. He mentions that detail. And Jesus says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now this is Jesus kind of uh, uh, laying the groundwork for this conversation because Jesus routinely called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man is this figure from the Old Testament. And I've got a verse here, I think. Um, so it's from Daniel chapter 7. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. In the book of Daniel, there is the Ancient of Days who, is, who we would say as Christians is God the Father. And an anointed king, the son of man, comes before him and is given this kingdom. So Jesus calls himself the son of man all through the Gospels. And so he's kind of laying the groundwork. He's giving the the disciples an opportunity to respond the way they do. He says, who do they say I am? And they reply, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Now we can look at that and say, oh boy, they got it all wrong. They didn't understand who Jesus was. But this is high praise. This is like if a politician's talking to his campaign advisors, and he's he's running for senator or something. He says, who do people say I am? And they say, some people say Abraham Lincoln, some people say George Washington, some people say FDR. Right? This is not an insult. This is high praise. Jesus has got a very, very good reputation at this point. But Jesus presses the disciples. He says, yeah, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Meshiach. You're the Masach. You are the Christos. You are the anointed one that God promised. And Jesus says, gold star. Jesus says, Peter, um, blessed are you, Simon, son of jo- Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Um, P- 
Peter, Peter actually says, uh, son of the living God. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are you. And he says, I'll build my church on this rock and the gates of heaven will not prevail against it. And then he does what anybody would do in these circumstances. He calls a press conference and says, the polling is in. We just polled the, these 12 disciples and they all agree that I am the Messiah. Right? That's what Jesus does. No, Jesus does exactly the opposite of what we would expect. He does not call a press conference. He doesn't issue a press release. What he says is, I am going to keep this secret for a while so you all don't tell anybody. And then he goes on, from that time he began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And Peter takes him aside and says, Jesus, that's a terrible idea. That's a really dumb idea, Jesus. Don't let that happen. And he turns, in Mark's gospel, uh, Mark adds a detail, he says he turns and looks at the other disciples. So my guess is that they were all looking at Jesus. Bad idea. That, that's not going to work. See, I've got plans. If you're the anointed one, then I'm going to be in your cabinet. I'm going to be in charge of, you know, health and human services or, you know, Department of State or whatever. They, they've got plans, and they say, Jesus, that's a terrible idea. And Jesus says to them, says to Peter, but, but really to all of them, he says, get behind me, Satan. What he means by that is I'm going this way, you go that way because you can't have anything to do with me if that's going to be your perspective. He says, you've got your mind set on the things of humans as opposed to the things of God. So what is kind of the observation that I would make about all this? It is that God's ways are not ours. Jesus says that there is a human way of looking at things and there's a, a divine way of looking at things. There's a human plan and there's a divine plan. And they are different. They are fundamentally different, and that's especially true in the area of kings. We saw it in the case of David, right? Uh, David was the one that his dad, his own father, said, well, you know, I'll bring in the other seven, but there's no point in David coming in because there's no way David could ever be king. So David's still out taking care of the sheep, but that's the one that God picks. God picks David to be the next king of Israel because God's perspective, and in particular God's perspective about kings, is different than the human perspective. Paul talks about the trouble he has. He goes, he's gone all around the Mediterranean talking to people in, in every community, telling them about Jesus. And he says, I have one area that is very difficult. I proclaim Christ. I proclaim an anointed king crucified. And he says, that's a stumbling block for Jews. They say, I was with you right up to that. And then I got tripped up when you said crucified. And he says, and I tell it to Gentiles and they call it foolishness. Nobody understands the idea of a king who's crucified. He says, this is the way God is different. God's way of understanding things, but especially divine things, is just different from ours. Jesus talks about how one of the things, one of the things that makes our perspective different is what we expect a king to do. We expect, you know, if somebody offered you the job of king, there'd be perks, right? And you'd be thinking, that'd be nice, you know. Um, and, and you know, I, rather than tell you what those perks are, here's my advice. Find a six-year-old girl, any six-year-old girl you happen to bump into, and ask her what her favorite Disney princess is. And she'll have one, maybe two. But ask her what her favorite Disney princess is, and then ask her why. 
And you're probably going to get a very human response because even by the time we're this tall, we know what the, what the perks are associated with being royalty. You get to lord it over people. You get, you get to have a ball and dance all night, whatever it is, whatever it is. People know the perks that come with royalty. But Jesus says there's something very different about God's idea of kingdom. In the kingdom of God, the king serves. The king even dies for the people. And more than that, if you read the very next paragraph after our lesson, Jesus goes on to say, and he calls us to do the same thing. He says, if you would be his disciple, you must take up your cross daily and follow him. But he says, I'm king, and I'll go first. And then I will rise, and I will come back, and I will go with you. It's very different to be a king in the world and to be a king in the kingdom of God. So the question for us is, who is your king? Some people say, I don't have a king. I'm an autonomous individual. Nobody tells me what to do. How's that working out for you? Some of us say, oh no, I'm a Christian. Jesus is my king. But if you're like me, there's this asterisk, right? Jesus is my king asterisk. Because there's this area that probably occurred to you right away. And you said, Jesus is my king, except in that one spot where I've told him to mind his own business. There's this one area of my life that Jesus has no business monkeying with my my finances or how I relate to people at work. There's no business that Jesus has interfering with my sexuality. Uh, that there's this one little area that I've got a little asterisk. Jesus is not the king of that area of my life. And the question's the same. How's that working out for you? Jesus came to announce the nearness of the kingdom of God. But for him to be a king, you have to accept him as the king. And all the other relationships that he offers, Jesus says that he will make us, he will adopt us into the family of the children of God, that we will become heirs of the immeasurable riches of God, that we will have a friend who, who can intercede with us, uh, for us, uh, with the Father, that we can have a brother, but that all of these things are predicated on us having Jesus as our King. So the question is, is Jesus your King? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today knowing that if Jesus is our King, we are not always good subjects. And we pray you would help us to see the areas where we are not subjects and that we would become good and faithful disciples, that we would become subjects of the King Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.